Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Commerce Cast, which is an NCR Greenhouse podcast production. This is where we bring in industry experts to discuss the latest trends and insights in the world of retail, hospitality, and self-directed banking. NCR Greenhouse is part of NCR Corporation, which, of course, is one of the leading technology and platform providers for these industries. My name is Ishmael Amler. I'm the Executive Vice President responsible for consulting, advisory, and technology services for NCR. And today, I am really honored to introduce a friend, a very special guest, Mick Ebeling, a thought leader and innovator in the field of technology-driven transformation, whose purpose is to create technology for the sake of humanity. Let me tell you a little bit about Mick before we get into conversation. So as the founder and CEO of Not Impossible Labs, Mick has been at the forefront of using technology to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. He is a firm believer in the power of technology to create positive change, and you'll see that as we get into conversation. One of Nick's, Mick's most notable achievements is the creation of the iWriter, which, was an, which is an open-source, low-cost eye-tracking system that enables people with paralysis to draw using only their eyes, and we'll explore that a little bit. An incredible story. The iWriter was developed in response to the needs of a graffiti artist, who was diagnosed with ALS and lost the ability to move or communicate, Mick and his team at Not Impossible Labs designed and built the iWriter, which allowed Tony to continue creating art using only his eyes, and of course, continue to be part of society. In addition to the iWriter, Mick has led a number of other groundbreaking projects, including the creation of the world's first 3D printed prosthetic arms for children in war-torn Sudan, and the development of a low-cost prosthetic hand that can be produced using a 3D printer. And as you might imagine, Mick's work has been recognized with numerous awards and accolades, including the prestigious Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award, South by Southwest Dewey Winburn Community Service Award, and you probably will have seen him in all sorts of outlets, including the New York Times, Wired, and the Wall Street Journal. Beyond the work at Not Impossible Lab, Mick is an accomplished author and speaker, um, and he, he can be found on the speaker circuit on TEDx, South by Southwest, and the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. Now, I've known Mick a few years, and I remember the first time I met him at a very corporate event on the West Coast, where I actually saw Mick drive a bunch of very senior corporate executives to tears, literally to tears. It was one of the most powerful presentations I have experienced in my life. Mick, welcome. Wow, that, that is an intro. Whew, I'm feeling the pressure now. So thanks. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on board, Mick. Um, and that presentation still comes back to me, and I still use it time and time again, of the art of storytelling and how really all of us really need purpose as we go about our business. And I'm really interested as we talk about in going to our conversation in you telling a little bit of that story for our audience here. Uh, but let, let's start with Not Impossible Lads, if, if, if we can, Mick. Um, what is it and what inspired you to start it? So, you, I mean, you talked a little bit about it in, in the intro, but um, the punchline and kind of the, the short version is, my wife and I had a date night hijacked. We ended up at a gallery event that a friend of mine took us to. 
We ended up being exposed to this paralyzed graffiti artist named Tony Temptquan. We learned that he had been lying motionless in bed for seven years, unable to talk, unable to communicate, except for through a simple thing called a letterboard, which is a piece of paper with the alphabet on it, where someone moves their finger along the letters. And then when the finger would get to a letter that he wants, he would blink. And then they would kind of capture that to form words and sentences. And that's how they would communicate. My wife and I were just blown away by that that was his reality. We ended up doing, I had a production company at the time. So we assembled a team of hackers and makers and technologists and misfit geniuses. They descended upon our house. We decided to make a device that allowed him to draw again using only his eyes. We did it. In spite of ourselves. it worked. Uh, and then everybody flew home. Right. So we brought everybody together and everybody flew home. And then we all went back to our day jobs. And then we woke up and we woke up and it was Time Magazine's top 50 inventions, accolades from all over the world. People were sending us emails and responses. And there was just this emotional surge of an influx of people who have really responded to this. So it caused us to kind of step back and say, well, wait a second, what, what's happening right now? Because being from LA and being from Hollywood and being in production, we're used to gassing up the things that we talk about. Everybody promotes everything here, you know, big or small, you promote it. We don't promote this at all. And it goes bigger than anything we could have ever imagined. And so it started this whole thought process for me of like, wait a second, technology to help people hmm. addressing these social issues via technology and then making it available for people because we made this thing open source so other people can have access to it. There's this almost cultural response, this emotional cultural response. And so I started to contemplate maybe that I, that's something that I should do and stop doing what I was doing in production. And so thought about it, slept on it, talked to mentors about it, prayed about it, and ultimately gave myself a deadline of making the decision, made the decision. And the decision was, dude, you got so lucky, like just stick with your day job. Don't, don't assume that this is, it can be re replicated in any way. Just, you know, get nicer duct tape and zip ties for the device and make it more available for people, but just stick with what you know. And, uh, and you've heard me tell the story, but almost the moment that I made that decision and I was very like secure and confident and like, okay, I put the right thought into this. I made the decision moving on opened up my computer and I got an email from the artist Tempt and the email said, that's the first time I'd drawn anything for seven years. I feel like I've been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could take a breath. Oh my goodness. And that was the story I remember you saying in that conference and literally I was surrounded by execs in their 40s, 50s, 60s crying. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> The question is, if you're thinking about doing or not doing something, and then some dude sends you an email like that, do you really have a choice anymore, right? Like, so that, that was, we always talk about that that was the moment, that was the origin of Not Impossible Labs. And so what we do is we create what we call technology for the sake of humanity. We go out there, like Robin Hood, do-gooders, hackers, makers, we see these social issues that exist in the world, issues of mobility accessibility, communication, whatever it might be, accessibility. And then we say, all right, how do we use technology to prototype a solution around that? We test it. We have a, we have a whole design process that we go through. 
And then once we figure out if it works or not, then how do we scale it? And that's that's really now what Not Impossible exists to do is to see the, we call it some of our, our vernacular is absurdities. When we see these absurdities in the world, how do we see these things, dogpile on them with brilliant collaborators from around the world, figure out a way to solve it, and then make it accessible? That's really our, that's, that's our formula. That's our playbook. And, and the other stories I've sort of mentioned a little bit around the, the story in Sudan, just talk to us a little bit about how, how did that happen around the prosthetics? Uh, so the prosthetics, again, one of those days that, uh, or one of those occurrences that I feel like a lot of times life happens in these, we are as humans presented with opportunities. We're presented with opportunities every single day, but in the hubbub and the busyness of our life, sometimes we're not present enough to see it. And I definitely fall victim to that. You know, everything's going so fast. But it was just, I think I was very blessed that this one particular night, a friend of mine told me about a doctor who was working over in the Nuba Mountains, which is this area between Sudan and South Sudan. After dinner, I went home and researched him. His name's Dr. Tom Katana read the story about the work that he does over there and the, how the one thing that he hates to do is to perform amputations and that he has to do that all the time. One particular story that really caught me and, and just kicked me in the gut was this story about a young boy named Daniel who lost both of his arms in a bombing over there, a government bombing of, uh, of the local regional area uh, of the Nubans who, you know, this was a non-militaristic site that the government was bombing. And um, Dr. Tom saved his life. And the image of this young boy named Daniel and his story, and now his now the trajectory of his life, now that he was going to be essentially an armless boy, just it just kicked me in the gut and the heart. And the same type of reaction that I had with Kemp, I had with Daniel and said, all right, I have to do something about it. There was, there's actually one part of the story where Daniel says he wakes up and he sees that he's now a double amputee. He recognizes he's not going to throw a ball. He's not going to dress himself, not feed himself again. And his comment was, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. And that was this moment of like, all right, this is ridiculous. I got to do something about it. And uh, so woke up the next day, told my wife, and she said, great, we're going to invite a bunch of crazy people to our house again, just like we did for the iRider, tables and chairs against the wall. You know, uh, we always joke that we always like to invite strange people to our house to teach our kids bad words in multiple languages. So <laughs> it came in, and, and sure enough, we went through the process, and eventually, um, actually four months to the day that I went out with that friend, and you told me about Dr. Tom the first time, uh, four months to the day, I was back in Sudan and we had made a 3D printed prosthetic arm and Daniel fed himself for the first time. Incredible. And it was, it was just, it was, as you can imagine, it was euphoric. People, you know, were in this, this refugee camp and he's feeding himself again. And then we continued on with kind of the mission of Not Impossible, which is, all right, great. This is not about us coming in and, you know, doing a stunt. It's about how you create something scalable. So we went to his local village and taught them how to make arms so that they could continue to make them after we left. And, and that, that project, I think, you know, I don't have a favorite project per se, but that one was so meaningful for us because 
there was a little bit of a fraud complex, I think, that a lot of people have that maybe we just got lucky with the iWriter and it was just, you know, things lined up for us. But then when we did it again, we're like, all right, well, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something that we can continue. And that really, I think, gave us the fuel to continue on with the mission of Not Impossible Labs. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to touch on that. Come back to that, really, about how do you scale, how do you institutionalize innovation. Just, but just before I go there, both those stories you talk about is technology for humanity, great examples of real impact. Are you, are you seeing that purpose uh, is becoming more important for businesses as you go around meeting you know, the stakeholders that you meet? Is it more important? to have an impact on society for businesses than it's ever been. It's more talked about for sure. I think that, so pre-pandemic, there was, as professionals, as, as, as working adults, we saw ourselves as there was Mick or Ish or whoever, at the office, right? And I met you in that professional capacity. And that's, that's, who, that's who you are, that's who I was, and that's who it is. And then there was who we are when we're not at work. And those were two different people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who we are and what we do were two distinct people, entities. There's probably a little bit of crossover. I mean, because our values and our ethics come through in terms of, 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 of who we ex- how we exist and interface with people. But there's two. Well, then the pandemic hit. And now all of a sudden, who I am at work and who I am at home, well, just from a just sheer uh, geography perspective, that those two were overlapped, right? Because we're working at home now. <clears throat> so this concept of a differentiation between our, 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 our who we are became one and the importance of the value of our life and how we see the value of our life contributing back to society and to the world. Now we started to see people disappear from the planet due to COVID. And we started to see our our anxiety and our vulnerability as humans was heightened. And we started to say, I think collectively as a species, wait a second, we got to reset here. Like what's really truly important. So you saw people quit their jobs and say, you know, I've always wanted to move to X and mountain bike or ski or I've always wanted to go to this, like, screw it. If the world's coming to an end, and that's what it felt like, I think at the height, the peak of it, when all the news was going on, it yeah. felt like truly the world was coming to an end. So people said, forget it. I'm going to go and I'm going to be the person that I want to be. Hmm. Well, I think that as the pandemic now, you know, pandemic ends and COVID is now very much, you know, in control. I think that's a safe thing to say. It's not gone, but we've got, we're not as fearful. We don't exist with this general overwhelming fear of the unknown. People have not kind of recalibrated back to who I am at work and who I am as a person as being two separate. They are one and the same. So now when you're talking about the workplace, when you're talking about uh, creating corporate cultures and you're talking about, you know, just the overall feeling that the workforce have, is that mm -mm, what I do and who I am has to have some type of significant overlap. And if I I feel like there's a a difference in that, there's a good chance I'm going to bail and go someplace else. So now, and this is, I think, a beautiful thing is we have kind of labeled it enlightened capitalism, is Mm -hmm. that now companies that realize what's truly important to 
their their uh, their workforce mm-hmm. is having a sense of purpose and meaning. And so, if they can relate what they do, what the corporate you know uh, goals are from a business perspective, if they can figure out how to relate that into some type of societal impact, now you create a retention. You create a recruiting, a retention tool, a productivity tool. You create. Uh, an inspiration tool, an innovation tool that now people feel like they're aligned because who they are and what they do is really is, is, is now aligned with kind of what they want their life to mean. And I think that's kind of the key thing <clears throat> that a lot of people have taken out over the last, you know, it's 2023. So three years, it's just a moment is that people want their lives to have meaning. They want to feel like that they have made an impression on the world in some way. And that's what they're really looking to do. I think that's a great way of putting it, Mick. And also probably at the same time as there's more of a demand than ever in corporations playing that role of driving societal impact, which traditionally yeah. would have been done by other institutions. Well, um, and I think that, that's yeah. the enlightened capitalism because now if companies realize that if they do good, that they're actually willing, will it have a direct correlation and impact on their bottom line? Yeah. That's like, you can't ask for a better situation. Like that yeah. now it gives, and we always joke about this, it gives the CFO the right to be the largest advocate for yeah. having this role in, in, in actually creating impact because it has a direct correlation to the bottom line. Yeah. Let me just go back to non-impossibles. I've heard you say, uh, if, I, if, I, if I'm paraphrasing you correct, everything is impossible the day before it becomes possible. And yep. And one of the things there is what that talks to for me is the mindset that everything can be possible. Yeah. And as you went on your Not Impossible Labs journey, uh, what else was it other than mindset that allowed you to create such sort of innovative solutions and then the scale out? You know, what's, what's the lessons that corporations can pick up from that? Well, I think I can relate personally that I had a bit of a cheat code on this is that as a producer, we were constantly posed with these very logistical, pragmatic challenges of, all right, so we want three elephants to be pushed out of of a plane. Uh, We want one painted blue, one painted pink, one painted green, and they're going to parachute down. But, uh, and and whatever, I'm, I'm obviously being ridiculous, but we would be posed these challenges for the type of work that we were doing in production. And our response, whenever we were posed with something, was always like, yeah, a relaxed, kind of borderline overconfident response of like, yeah, no problem. We got that. Great. And then we would hang up the phone and we'd go, oh shit, now we got to figure it out. And then we would go into figure it out mode, right? And we would go and do that. And that muscle had been developed, obviously, for things where the stakes weren't high. It was primarily for either, you know, content or advertising or films or things like that. But we were used to that, having that mindset. So then we just transfer that over to things that actually matter, right? Someone having an ability to communicate with their friends and family, someone being able to draw, someone be able to feed themselves, things that had much higher stakes. So that I think was, was a lesson that that muscle once developed, just, it's just a question of the aperture or of the scale of how you begin to tackle it. Mm. But every single thing that surrounds us that is possible today 
at one point was impossible. So from a pure data perspective, from a pure science perspective, from a pure history perspective, that correlation and that equation is that if everything that's possible today was impossible first, then every challenge, every impossibility that we face right now in our life must also be on that same trajectory. And so once you truly believe that, once you truly like take that on, then you see yourself as a role player in the acceleration or eventual, you know, figuring out of the transition from impossible to possible. And you don't see things as this constricted, you know, there is no light at the end of the tunnel scenario. You see it as that there is a light and it's just a question of how we're going to get there. And I cannot tell you, once you really truly absorb and, and, and internalize that mindset, how your perspective changes. Everything you see is, is a device, as a tool, as a means, as a, as a pathway to, to kind of accomplishing that. And that's, how, that's really, I think, how we are not impossible. And now the work that we do with corporations around the world is just lighting that up and expanding and giving people permission to have that mindset so that they might solve the either the social absurdities that they see in the world or in the case of the work that we do with corporations all over the world is like what are those corporate absurdities that they're trying to tackle and but that mindset really doesn't change whether it's social or or business it really doesn't change and, and in terms of um from a business perspective one of the big things of course is the resistance to change right in a big corporation you've talked about frictionless innovation which uh, how does that work? I mean, what is frictionless innovation? And can it so, be applicable to big corporations? So I think that, first of all, this word innovation is is used a lot right now. It's thrown around in boardrooms. It's thrown around in business publications and books and things like that. Um, for me, innovation is a little bit like, it's something that already exists. It's innate to how we exist as human beings. Our entire species has always seen things that they want or that they need, and then they figure out how to get there and convert things from impossible to possible. So it's a question of how do you create a change in the space or the, or, uh, the field or whatever, the, the world that you're playing in? How do you create change, positive change, change that's different from the, the status quo, but do it in a way that it requires as little effort as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, if I'll say this. Um, if I said to you, hey, Ish, I really, really, really need a white button-down collared shirt right now. Can, can, I, do you, can you get me a white, white shirt? I, I need it right now. This is a life or death situation. What would you do? You'd take your shirt off. You'd give it to me. Like, all right, we'd do it. That is a, and even if it wasn't life or death, you'd say, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I have one right now. Let me, let me go get a t-shirt and I'll, I'll give you my shirt. But if I said to you, hey, I really need a, on the left side of pinstripe and the right side of plaid and I need this color. The, the answer is you could get that for me, but it would take time. You'd have to go have it custom made. And, and I know you have all your suits made on Seville Row. So you'd have to go back to your, your custom tailor. And, uh, but yeah. Sure. But, but that is, that's a situation where you can make that happen. But the frictionless path that I think we need to pursue is how do we ch create change 
which is just let's just go with the white shirt, give the tools that we have in front of us. How do we create change or how do we create a difference using what we have in front of us? And that's really what we espouse to do because that is what we have always had at Non Impossible, this, this concept of frugal innovation, which mm-hmm. is you look at your workshop, you look at the tools that you have around you, and you figure out how to build the mousetrap with what you have in front of us, as opposed to having to go out and create something brand spanking, you know, mm-hmm. new or design something new. It doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place for that, right? Because that's that's a facet of of innovation and a facet of evolving different things in technology. But the frictionless side is if you can capitalize on the resources or the pathways or the mechanisms or the, the, the way that people operate, if you can make it easy for them and then generate change, well, then you make it easier and faster and more scalable to attain. Yeah. And uh, frugal innovation, I love that term, uh, and to go alongside the frictionless innovation. Um, do, let, let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of innovation disrupting an industry. And I know uh, you, one of your projects at the moment is in the hospitality industry, Bento. Talk, tell us a little bit about that. What is it? How do you think that will change that industry? Uh, all right. Well, you know how passionate I get about Bento. So I'm going to just time check on this. And I'll, yeah. try to, I'll try to keep this compartmentalized. Yeah. So... We have been obsessed, I won't say it any other way, obsessed with this concept of food insecurity, which is this concept of people having enough food to stay alive, maybe 13, 14 meals a week, but not enough to thrive, you know, 21 meals a week, right? Three meals a day, seven days a week. So that, I didn't know what that, I never heard the concept of food insecurity before. I've heard of people being hungry and homeless. But I had to know that, that kind of technical distinction. So when we probed into that, we realized that the largest majority of people who are food insecure are usually people who are working. They're hustling. They're working multiple jobs. They're going to school. They're, they're living in you know, multiple families in a house. But they're not, it's not the standing on the corner panhandling the type of thing. It is like that, that is a popula- that's a segment of the population. But I can give you the numbers here in the U.S., there's 50 plus million people who are food insecure in this country, and there's 650 to 750,000 homeless people. So you can see that distinction, right, in terms of that. So mm-hmm. we said, okay, that's crazy. That's absurd. We got to do something. So we started to go out and talk and test and, and interview people. And when we talked to people who were food insecure, we actually went on the homeless path. We mm-hmm. asked them, what is the one thing that you prize most or what's the one thing that you need in your life? You know what they said? Phone. <laughs> they said a cell phone. They said a cell phone. And we were like, okay, that, that's an unusual thing for a, what we would, a homeless person, to say. And when we delved into that, we realized that it became the social fabric for how they exist and how they have community, which is something that we as humans need. Mm-hmm. So that was a data point that we really captured. The second thing is we started to look in this space of hunger and, and food insecurity, how people access food. We looked at the supply chain and the supply chain exists where if you look at a landscape, a city, and this is, we were looking at primarily urban environments, you have food pantries and soup kitchens and places where people to go get free food. Well, in a city like the, the one I live in, Los Angeles, 
you have a couple of nodes on there, but it's few and far between. So the distance between where you live and getting there could be 20 minutes, could be, could be an hour plus, depending on your work situation, where you're living. And so we said, well, wait a second. Those are a source of food, but why don't we look at all sources of food? And when we did that layover on our heat map, it's restaurants and grocery stores. And so we said, what if we were able to tap into the supply chain of food that already exists and now make that accessible for people who are food insecure? So we were able to do that through having access to APIs. We were able to now have access through our, our partners on the, the food side on you know, point of sale. So the you know, Postmates, Uber Eats, Grubhub, um, we have access to every restaurant in the predominant, I would say 99% of the restaurants in this country we have access to through, through those partners. And then we also are looking at grocery stores and giving access to that. So now what we have is a device that we created, some really simple, simple code that acts as a supply chain connective tool that we deploy on the side of organizations who have a vested interest in making sure that their, their constituency gets fed. And that is the healthcare system, right? Because we have seen this like so much in the last 12 months is people really understanding that food is the conduit to health. And if you can keep people healthy, especially in the healthcare system, you can actually keep bills down, costs down, and back to that enlightened capitalism. If there's a way to make sure someone eats and eats well and eats with a meal that's been curated by dietitians around whatever it is that potentially ails them, or at least it's just basic good nutrition, and it actually saves the healthcare institution money, which is in this country, the two biggest budgets in this country on the governmental level are defense and healthcare. So now we have a tool that can actually drop the cost of, of a sick society, bring their, make them healthier, make them more vibrant, give them a sense of security so they can thrive in their life and at the same time save money on the, on the uh, private sector and the public sector. And so that's what Bento is. And, and um, one of the things we're really proud of is that the iWriter was our first Time Magazine top invention, which we were just over the moon on. And Bento was our second. So as an organization, Not Impossible is the only entity that we know of that has ever won Time Magazine's top 50 inventions twice. And the fact that it's for a, a device or a solution and an approach to addressing wh what we would see as the residual effect of an economy that's kind of very, very difficult right now and coming out of a pandemic, um, that to us is just incredibly exciting because we get to see this population of people who are now kind of supported and given a little bit more of a foundation to thrive in their own life. Congratulations. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible story. But as you were going through there, Mick, I was, I was sort of noting what you went through. So there, there's, a, there's a mindset shift. I, we do not accept that this situation needs to stay as it is. There's a whole requirement phase where you go and talk to the people who are impacted and surprise yourself with what you find. There's the process of we're going to build something. There's a partnership, an ecosystem, different ways of working. There's the recognition that there aren't really industry boundaries. So health, grocery, hospitality, Everything is open for disruption as you go around this. And then there's the practical uh, recognition that there's a business case. There's a business case here. If you do this right, you impact society, large-scale society, and you actually have a fantastic business case. 
I'm sure corporations will be lapping that up because this is this sounds like some sort of methodology to large scale social impact and innovation. Yeah, it, it, I think that the beauty about what has taken place with us and with the absurdities that we're tackling right now is that it becomes a playbook for you know multinational corporations and and businesses and Fortune 500 companies to look at this and say, wait a second, this is actually a playbook that we can apply here. And as I said earlier, being able to use and, and this is this is um, so there's this concept called virtue of selfishness, hmm. which is uh, an author named Anne, Anne Ran or Ayn Rand developed and forget kind of her political views. The concept is selfishness is typically interpreted as I do something for myself and it's a negative thing. I'm, I'm that person's selfish. Don't be selfish. We tell our children mm. and altruistic is oh, I'm doing something for someone else and I'm being giving and, and selfless. And what this theory poses is what if we flip that? Because when we do something that helps somebody else, when we do good for someone, it gives us a tremendous sense of, of, just warm fuzzies, which is a very technical term, psychological term, right? We feel good. The West Coast technical term. Yes, exactly. It's a Los Angeles technical <laughs> term. So, but what if that was okay? So, it, and, and the whole theory is what if we embraced selfishness from the standpoint of let's go help people because how does that make us feel? How does that make them feel? And so mm -hmm. I think that that concept now applied to a business space when we do good in the world, and there's droves of studies about this out of all of the major kind of publishers and, and business schools around the world, is that when companies stand for impact and stand for purpose, they grow faster than companies that don't. They recruit easier. They retain people. I mean, that's, isn't that a cheat code for, for success? You know, yeah. you've got to make sure that you're what you're doing has inherent market value from a business perspective. Hmm. But then when you layer this on top of it, that's a cheat code that gives you the ability to thrive and differentiate yourself in the marketplace such that you attract talent, attract customers, and it gives people a reason to want to engage. And that's, to me, that I think is, is such a beautiful thing about our, how our society has evolved recently is hmm. that that is core to how any C-suite has to think about their business right now. Yeah, and 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 the, the mentor is in a particular in a particular sector where a lot of our customers reside, right? So hospitality, grocery, retail. If you wanted to make a bigger impact, what would you want from that C-suite, from our customers, to to make a bigger impact around what we're doing, what you're doing around food security? I mean, here's the beautiful thing. There is a population of people that none of your customers have ever woken up and said, you know what? We really need to market to people who cannot pay. Hmm. Right? That's asinine. What, what, what CMO, what CEO, what growth officer, strategy officer would say, let's focus on a market that questionably might not be able to pay for our services. What Bento has figured out is a way to tap into that population. So again, just in this country, 50 million plus people who now we have empowered to have spending power through, through the healthcare, through the organizations that are responsible for them. So now you have 50 million people who, quote, couldn't pay 
And now you have 50 million people who actually absolutely can't. That perspective and that ability to have access to that market is now great. What Bento strives to do is now, how do we make the healthiest, easiest options for those people so yes. that it is frictionless, that it taps into how they exist and how they behave, how they cook, how they eat, how they dine, how they commune. So what I would say to your, your customers is, well, first of all, please call us because we'd love to talk to you about how to actually really tap into this. But from a conceptual standpoint, it's how can there be, how can, how can you in the hospitality industry create social good, but do it in a way that is beneficial to your bottom line? And how do you partner with entities that have the ability to give you that access that doesn't require a massive change in your corporate strategy? At the end of the day, the way that our purchases at grocery stores and restaurants show up just shows up like any other bottom line. For anybody else, it's going to look, if, you're not, if you don't actually know where it's coming from, it just mm. looks like another purchase. Mm. But for the fact that this is a brand new population of people who have spending power, who have the authority and the, the choice and the agency to make decisions on where they're going to spend that money. And that's a really powerful thing, I think, for, for institutions, for especially in hospitality, to be able to harness. Totally. How do they contact you? Go, you will, first of all, you reach out to us at Not Impossible Labs, and you can reach out to us on all of our social media channels. We're very easy to get a hold of. And you can reach out to me personally at Mick at NotImpossibleLabs.com. And if you can also, CC to make sure, because I know that millions of people are going to reach out now. CC Maya, M-A-Y-A at notimpossiblelabs.com. Mick at notimpossiblelabs.com. One final question. I know we could talk yeah. forever if we have done in the past. One final question. After going on your journey from that very first incredible thing that you did with the iWriter, learning everything that you've done, that you've learned, if you went back to that time, knowing everything you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? Is there anything you've learned that you'd apply at that time? What comes to mind? I would say, first of all, I just feel ridiculously lucky, right? I feel ridiculously lucky to have met the people that I've met and to work with the people that I work with. I would say, really being uh, deliberate about capturing the collaborators intent that want to play with us, that want to help solve these things. Because I think that as you're starting something, you're not quite figuring out the, the harnessing of the community of people who are rallying behind what you're doing and maintaining a way to constantly stay in touch with those people. I think that we have this natural magnetism at Non-Impossible Labs that people want to play in our sandbox. They really want to, 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 to be part of that. And I think though, but over, we're a decade long, a decade old institution now. I think that those early years, there were some absolute genius people that we might've lost touch with that I wish we would have harnessed and just stayed in touch to kind of kept them along with our journey. That's, that's the, probably the one thing that I would do different because I think in many other areas, I think that we, you know, and I think we're very fortunate to this. I think we nailed it in terms of being in the right place at the right time of having this company that is a social innovator in a time where people that becomes important to people and to be able to continue to push that and be the, the flag waving ambassadors of that movement. 
I think is really is really key and has been very strategic to our success. But harnessing the community and really being able to um, speak to and, and stay in conversation with the community, I think that's something we probably could have done better. That's, that's a great lesson. Listen, thank you. We're coming to the end of our time, but such a pleasure to chat to you again, Mick. Always a pleasure. You, I'm sure you're going to leave all our viewers and listeners energized as much as you leave me energized. And I've heard this story multiple times. And yet still, uh, here I am, totally inspired to drive some of this change. Mick's work at Not Impossible Lab, actually, I think is a great testament to the power of technology to solve some of the world's most pressing problems and create products that are accessible to everybody. Mick, thank you for sharing your experiences and insights with us on how technology can be used to create this change. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to just subscribe to our podcast series and stay up to date on the latest trends and insights into the world of business and commerce. If you want to get hold of Mick, uh, you look uh, just Google Not Impossible Labs or Mick at notimpossiblelabs.com. Follow him on Twitter, follow him on social media. I, am, I can guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. Thank you, everybody, for dialing in, and we will catch you again soon.